1: As the kids are leaving, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and join with me. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, he was found, or she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit And he gave him the name, Jesus.
0: Good morning. Great to have you here this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. Um, Let's see, a couple of things that I wanted to... Uh, share with you and i think i might only remember one of them right now and maybe not even that if i keep talking um uh, many of you know that we have been raising money for Immigrant Connection, uh, which is an immigration clinic that we are trying to start. We're hoping to have that open within the next year or so. Uh, it takes a while to uh, get trained and to uh, to get approved by the Department of Justice, uh, but I want to let you know that through the efforts that we've had so far, we've raised over $5,000. We've raised uh, a little over two thousand or about almost twenty two hundred dollars through our goFundMe page and uh, and then through the sale of a car, we have another three, and probably uh, we 'll get a little more there. so we have already over five thousand dollars, which is amazing and uh, and we are we 're committed to not asking you guys for a lot of money for that and uh, but we are asking you to participate, and so watch next week we 're going to have a way for you to be able to participate fully in the fundraising for uh, for Immigrant Connection. So I know wait in anticipation and hope because this is a season of anticipation, right? I know you're just on pins and needles about what's going to happen. So wait for it. Next week we're going we're gonna to talk more about it. We, uh, you might have noticed that we uh, have the, that the uh, sanctuary and the rest of the church is decorated for Christmas and I want to tell you, what was it, a Monday night? Uh, we just had a great time of decorating. Tons of kids here and families and watching soccer and putting up wreaths and Christmas trees and things like that. Uh, It was just a a great time of uh, decorating and eating together, a great family time. And uh, so we want to thank all of you who helped out with that. Well, like I said, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And like Abby said, Advent is a time of waiting. And, And it's a time where we look back on the length of time that the Jews waited for the Messiah to be born, really over 400 years from the time that the last prophet wrote to the time that Jesus was born. But Advent for us is also a time of our anticipating Jesus's second coming. And so while we wait for that to happen, while we You know, wait for Christmas and we hope in Christmas. It actually is a look forward to our hope that our Redeemer will come and that one day we will see him face to face as well. So, Advent is something even more than just looking back. Uh, at, uh, at what the Jews had to do when they were waiting for the Messiah. Now, when I was growing up in an evangelical church, we actually, I don't remember talking a lot about Advent. Yeah, We celebrated Christmas and Easter, but as far as like Advent and Lent, we didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on those things. We really didn't do a whole lot as far as the Christian calendar is concerned. And I think that's fairly typical of, of evangelical churches. Uh, But as I've gotten older, I've started to see more and more the value of following the the Christian calendar, at least to an extent. And and the reason is, is because I've recently come to see that for many American Christians, we sometimes tend to be more American than Christian. And and part of our identity uh, is anchored in a story. And, of course, we have a couple of parallel stories for those who grew up in the United States. We have the story of America, and we're a part of that story. But we also have the Christian story, and both of those things form our identity. But our American identity should pale in comparison to our Christian identity. And, uh, and oftentimes in the church, and this was true in the church that I was growing up, uh, you know, we celebrated things uh, like the 4th of July, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, all of these sort of national holiday, holidays that tell us who we are. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with any of us celebrating those national holidays. I think it's good to be grateful that we live in a free country like we do. But again, our identity as Americans should take a far back seat to our identity as Christians. And so that's why we don't put a lot of emphasis on national holidays in our church. Because we want to put more emphasis on Christian holidays and the Christian calendar. And so we want to celebrate things like Advent and Lent and Pentecost Sunday to remind us of who we are, to remind us of our story. And that's why we do things like this when we celebrate Advent and we have Advent uh, devotionals and activities and things like that because these are the high points of the Christian calendar. And so with that in mind today, let's start out by talking about the first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of Hope. Well, I've talked enough about Uh, history, the history around the Christmas story, for you to know most of it. Of course, at the time of Jesus' birth, the Jews were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Now, of course, the Romans wouldn't have necessarily seen it that way. They would have seen the Jews as their constituents. They were just a, a people group that happened to live within the territory that they controlled. But of course, for the Jews, they would have seen the Romans as oppressors. And some evidence to that Uh, to that end, is that, for instance, the Romans had their hand in Jewish religion. At the time, the Roman emperor actually selected the Jewish high priest, which was absolutely unconscionable. I mean, if you want to parallel that to our time, imagine if President Biden chose the the, uh, general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church and the head of every other denomination within the United States. That's what it would have been like. Of course, the Jews resented the high taxes that they were forced to pay. There were idols that were erected all around them, and so they had to live in that environment. And any time they tried to push back, any time they tried to mount a rebellion, they were crushed by the Roman Empire. Well, realizing that they had very little recourse, most of them went to the prophets and the Torah to find hope. See, the prophets promised that someday God would send a Messiah To free them. And look at what Isaiah wrote uh, hundreds of years before. He wrote this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people rejoice before you as they rejoice at harvest time. As men rejoice in dividing the plunder. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the Christmas story is the fulfillment of that ancient hope. Now Matthew's account begins with a guy named Joseph and his fiancée. Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant. And this, of course, isn't uncommon in our day today. But in Jesus' day, it was scandalous. And to make matters worse for Joseph, he knew that this child was not his because they had never been together. Well, of course, the law of Moses said that Mary should be stoned to death, but Jews weren't allowed to carry out the death penalty in the Roman Empire, and so she was safe from that. But despite that fact, she would have been subject to a lifetime of public disgrace. She was labeled forever. Now, Joseph's situation was just as complicated he would have felt the disgrace, uh, but mostly he was probably going to experience pity from the people since it was his fiance that was sleeping around, making him look like a fool. And of course, Joseph was committed to the law, and it said that he ought to divorce her. But he was also a good and compassionate man, and he didn't want to subject her to more ridicule and disgrace than was necessary, and so he decided that he would do it Quietly. But one night an angel appeared to Joseph and told him not to be afraid to marry her because she wasn't actually an adulteress. The baby growing inside of her was there from the Holy Spirit. And of course, the baby had a special calling. He was the Messiah that had been promised by Isaiah. Now, you can imagine how excited Joseph would have been once he got over the shock of his fiancée giving birth to the Messiah. Right, And the angel went on, and he said, you should name him Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And so I can imagine him thinking, okay, I can name him Jesus. Go on, anything else? And the angel continued. He said, you should name him Jesus because he will save his people from the Romans. No, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Let's, let's check that again. Okay, NIV, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Hmm. Okay, maybe it's just a translation. So let's go to the King James, right? That's the, that's the official version, the authorized version. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from huh, their sins. All right, how about a more literal translation? The New American Standard Bible. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Huh, I guess that's right. How about that? Now, I don't know what Joseph would have thought when the angel came to him and said that he would come to save the people from their sins. I don't think that's really what the Jewish people wanted. I think what they wanted was they wanted to be saved from the Romans. But the idea that they needed to be saved from their sins would have been strange for them. Here's how the Middle Eastern scholar Ken Bailey says it. He says, for an oppressed community, there is little space in the mind to tolerate anyone talking about its sins and its need for salvation from those sins. An oppressed community perceives its own faults as dwarfed by the enormity of what it is suffering from others. Any discussion of its sins will be heard as belittling the harsh world in which they live. It takes a brave man or woman to tell the community that it needs salvation from its sins. Now, you need to know that God is not for injustice and oppression. But in this case, from God's perspective, the Romans were not the problem. At least, they weren't Israel's biggest problem. Israel's biggest problem was that they were victims of their own sin. You see, Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. God chose them to be the people that would carry His blessing to the rest of the world. And he set up boundaries. He said, don't turn to other idols. Don't worship other gods. Take care of the widow and orphan. Trust me and do things my way and I will care for you. But of course, we know the story. They didn't care for the widow and orphan. They didn't trust God. They worshiped other gods. They turned to idols. They wanted to do things their way and be like the other nations. They, in fact, put their military hope, in treaties with other nations to protect them. And so God gave them what they wanted. And Assyria and Babylon came in and took them into captivity. And now 600 years later, they were still being ruled by a foreign oppressor. They believed that they were victims of the Romans. God said they were victims of their own sin. So which is true? Well, actually both. Because there's a truth in Scripture that we learn, and it's this, is that you can be both a victim and a perpetrator of sin at the same time. You see, one of the mistakes that we make is to believe that sins are just individual actions. You embezzle from work or steal candy from a store or sleep with your secretary, and we see them as isolated incidents. And certainly, uh, sins are individual actions. They are things that we do. But the Bible also talks about sin as a power, because if sin is, was only isolated actions that we commit, then we wouldn't need to be saved from sin. All we would need to do is for the Bible to tell us to stop sinning, and then either we would or we wouldn't, but we wouldn't need to be saved. But of course, we all know that it's not quite that easy. People don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll cheat on my spouse today starts with a crack in the door. You notice a little attraction and you linger a little bit. You know you shouldn't be doing it, but you do it anyway. And then you let it get a little further down the road and pretty, much, pretty soon you're all swept up in it. And then comes the action. And you look back and you wonder, how did I get to this point? Well, of course, our society then says, well, how can you blame them? They're victims of their circumstances. We can't really say that they're in the wrong. I mean, you would probably do the same thing if you were in her shoes. Have you seen the way he treats her? If you were in her shoes, you would do it too. In fact, I've seen movies that promote that same kind of message. Now. This isn't to say that our past experiences or our circumstances don't matter. And it's certainly not to say that there isn't any real oppression or injustice in the world. There most certainly is. And the Bible tells us that God hates it. In fact, one of our most famous Christmas songs that we sing talk about that this is the, the that um, the hope of of. of what Jesus came to do for us. It's a song, O Holy Night, where it has this line in here, where it says this about Jesus, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. So as you can see, God cares about injustice and oppression And in fact, God making things right in the end is a critical part of our Christian hope, and we should not ignore that as believers. We should notice where there is injustice and oppression and fight against it. But I'm not talking about that today. In fact, I want to focus on something very different. I want to talk about our tendency to believe that we are always the victim and the other person is the perpetrator, right? Uh, and you've probably done this before. You might say things like, "Well, sure, I'm not perfect, but listen to what he did. Okay, what would you do if you were in my situation?" Well, the Bible says that both can be simultaneously true. We are both victims and perpetrators of sin. You're not just one or the other. In fact, you're both. The two are related and they create a cycle, right? Your boss has a bad day and takes it out on you and you go home and snap at your spouse and she yells at the kids and the kids kick the dog and the dog bites the cat and the cat pees on the couch, you know? And this is the cycle that continues on. And we can blame our behavior on other people but ultimately we are responsible for how we live. This is a truth that, that the American Civil Rights Movement knew very well. Now, of course, there was real oppression and injustice that was happening at the time. And Martin Luther King uh, Jr. and others resisted it on the grounds that God hates oppression. And, of course, they didn't bring it on themselves. And you can't say, well, they did something to deserve it. They most certainly did not. And yet, when you study the civil rights movement, their first step in fighting injustice was self-examination. So anytime they would go into a city to protest or do something like that, they would get together and have a time of personal reflection and making sure that that they realized that that this very danger that even in a fight against injustice, they wanted to make sure that they didn't continue the cycle of sin that they were fighting against. And so even when we go in and fight against oppression and injustice, we have to look at the state of our own heart. Because we can very easily continue on that cycle. Because what they understood was is that sin is not just an isolated action, it's a power. It's a cycle that perpetuates itself and is passed on from one person to another. And what I found in my life and what you've probably found in your life is that the the greatest power that sin has over us is the power of rationalization. We see ourselves as victims of our circumstances. And because I'm a victim, you can't blame me for what I do. I can't help it. And we know how powerful of a force this is. Now, hopefully you can understand why we can't just tell people to stop sinning. I mean, we can certainly say that. But the fact of the matter is, is we don't just need to stop. We need to be saved from our sin. We think we need to be saved from our circumstances, right? We say things like, well, if only I was married. If only my spouse was a little sexier or more understanding. If only my childhood wasn't messed up. If only my boss would just pay me better or treat me better, then I would be a better worker. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's not just our circumstances that we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from our own sin. You see, even when God takes care of our bad circumstances there will always be another circumstance that pops up. We live in a sinful world where there will always be something or someone to victimize you. And the Bible tells us that one day God will deal with all of it once and for all, but in the meantime, if you have not dealt with the condition of your own heart, even success or happiness will breed sin in you and you will continue the cycle. And this, of course, was the case for the Jews. I mean, think about King Solomon. He was on top of the world. Everything was going well for him. The kingdom of Israel had never been richer or more powerful than it was under his rule. And God allowed him to even be able to build the temple. Everything was going great for him. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 9. But then we get to 1 Kings chapter 10 where it says this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. From the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. You see, even when things were going well, he found a way to rationalize his sin. Sin is not just an individual thing that we do in a vacuum. Sin is a power over us. And so we don't just have to stop. We need to be saved. And Christmas is about this. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so the question is, is, how does Jesus save us from our sins? How did Jesus save the Jews from their sins? And then how does it work for us? Well, in a way, it's hard to adequately explain how it works because, of course, we're limited by our experience and we're limited by the words that we have to describe something that is infinitely wonderful, But the truth is is that the Bible explains how Jesus' death saves us from sin in many different ways because there are many ways that it describes sin. There are many ways that we experience sin. For instance, the Bible talks about sin relationally as separation or strife. It talks about it legally as guilt. Sin is described as frailty or powerlessness or lack of faith, addiction, idolatry, pride, rebellion, self-righteousness. All of these are ways that the Bible describes sin. And so how Jesus needs to save us from sin has to deal with all of these various things. And so the Bible uses all of these images... And it describes what Jesus did as things like reconciliation and forgiveness and acquittal and repaying debt and example and restoration of the image of God. There are many ways that the Bible describes it. But today I want to finish by talking just about three ways that Jesus saves us from our sin. The first thing that we see is that Jesus saves us from the lie of sin. The lie that the Jews of Jesus' day believed was that if they just got out from under the Romans, they would be okay. But when Jesus came, he came preaching. He came teaching and modeling the life that God intends for us to live in every circumstance, not just when times are going well. For the Jews of his day who were tempted to fight back against the Romans, he taught them to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies and to do good to those who persecute you. If a Roman soldier uh, tells you to carry his cloak one mile, go two with him. You see, it's because behind every sin is a lie. It's a rationalization for why it's okay for me in this circumstance. If I wasn't in this situation, I would always do the right thing because my heart is pure. That's what we think. And Jesus recognized that sometimes we experience bad things that are the result of sin perpetrated against us. But Jesus saves us from the lie because he never allows our circumstances to be an excuse for sin. Whatever our circumstance we're in, we can always choose what is right and good. He also saves us from this lie by his example because even when Jesus was in the same situation, he always did what was right. He was mistreated, but he didn't retaliate. And because of this, Because of Jesus, we can reject the lie that we are helpless against sin. Second, Jesus saves us from the consequences of sin. Okay, This is, for most of us, what we think about when we think about the cross, when we think about Jesus saving us. Uh, So, for instance, in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Or we see in Matthew 26, 28 during the Last Supper, Jesus holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And he's talking about a, a, a forgiveness of an eternal kind of sin that someday that we can have eternity with God because of that forgiveness. And so he saves us from the eternal consequences of sin which is separation from God. Through Jesus' death, And resurrection, God forgives us and restores our broken relationship with him. But Jesus can also save us from the immediate consequences of sin as well. You know, part of the problem with the Jews was that some of their oppression was self-inflicted. Now, life in the Roman Empire certainly would not have been perfect, but they certainly could have kept the Romans off their back a little bit if they had checked their bitterness. But to do that, they would have to forgive. And that's why when John the Baptist came announcing the coming of Jesus the Messiah, it says that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was saying, if you want to be ready for the Messiah, if you want to be free from the Romans, then don't look at the Romans. Look at the state of your own heart. You See, Jesus can save us from the immediate consequences of our sin. Now, I'm not saying that if you steal a car, you can just pray and Jesus will get you out of jail. But after Jesus' resurrection, he left the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. And that's why you'll even hear some people testify that when they came to Christ, he freed them from alcohol or other addictions or the bitterness that they had held in their heart for decades. Suddenly, it was miraculously gone, and we might not even be able to explain it, but sometimes... God does that for people. They come to Christ and he frees them. And it frees us from the consequences because, for instance, something like bitterness is not just a sin, it's also a consequence of sin. It's an erosion of the heart. Because when we're bitter, our perspective is skewed. We become cynical. And cynical people are are critical and self-righteous. Everything else becomes... Uh, Everyone else's fault. Relationships are painful. Life becomes hard. But Jesus' work on the cross can free even the bitterest of people. He can save us from our eternal and our immediate consequences of sin. But Jesus doesn't just save us from the consequences of sin. He also saves us from the oppressive power of sin. See, salvation is not just a spiritual status that's payable when we die. It transforms us into a new kind of person. This is the power of grace. And I know that grace is kind of a church word, and we've talked about it quite a bit, but it's actually a really good relationship word. I learned this when I was playing basketball in high school. I, uh, when I was a sophomore, I believe, I had a coach who was a yeller. And actually, he was kind of sarcastic as well. And he was the kind of coach, I don't know if any of you have played sports before, but he was the kind of coach that if you ever made a mistake, he would yank you out of the game and sometimes you were just done for the, for the whole day. And some people respond to that kind of thing. Some people love playing for Bobby Knight who would just berate people and it would, just, it would make them mad and they would respond by getting mad in return and they would play better. That was not me at all. I would have a tendency to sulk. And if, actually, I would play afraid. Now, I wasn't afraid that my coach would throw a chair at me or punch me or anything like that, but I was afraid of making a mistake and I would get pulled from the game and I would be done for the day. And because of that, I would play so terribly because I was, so, I was more focused on not making a mistake than I was on doing the right thing and making a good play. I was so afraid of doing bad things that I couldn't even do good things. But the next year, when I was a junior, I had a different kind of coach. He was also very demanding, but he was much more gracious. He was more of a teacher. And so when I made a mistake, he would, as long as it wasn't the result of laziness or carelessness, he would pull me aside and he would put his arm around me and say, all right, do you see what you did there? Okay, now what would you do differently the next time? He would use it as a teaching moment. And then he'd say, now get back in there and let's do better. And I knew... That as long as I played hard, that as long as I played with the team, that I could make mistakes and we would recover. And because of that, I played so much better and I enjoyed it 10 times more. Okay, now, why is that? Well, it's because there was a foundation of trust there. It was a foundation of grace. And the truth of the matter is, fear paralyzes, but trust frees. Jesus saves us from the power of sin by showing us that we can trust that even in our sin, God still loves us. And when you trust in Jesus and His work, you don't have to fear. You don't have to live in fear. You can live in freedom. And you can allow that freedom to transform you over time. That's the power of grace. And so, maybe the question for today is, is is there a sin that you need to be freed from? You feel yourself under the power of lust or greed, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. Maybe you want to do right, but you're paying the price for the attitude of your heart. And you rationalize it by looking at your circumstances. And you think, well, if only my job was better, or if only I had a more understanding family, or if only I didn't have such a terrible childhood... If only God would fix my circumstances, then I'd be able to live the way he wants. I guess what I'm asking is, is where is your hope? Do you just hope that your circumstances will change? Do you hope that your temptation would go away? See, what I want you to hear today is that while God might change your circumstances, what he really wants to do, what he sent Jesus to do, is to change your heart. And he does that by proving his love, by sending Jesus to die for us, but not just to die for us, but to walk with us as we journey through life. And so then the question is, what do we do? How do we access this? How do we live free from the oppression of sin regardless of our circumstances? Well, let me mention three things. And it's not just a one-time thing, it's a, it's a way of life. Here's the first one. It's to make confession a regular part of your life. You see, secrecy and isolation are fuel for sin. As long as you're more concerned about your reputation than you are about your character, then sin will continue to have a power over you. And Christ died and made sin of no account in your life. And so it frees you then to be honest about it and to bring it to light with God, but also with other people to allow them to be able to walk with you even through the sin that oppresses you. Second, in addition to confession, repentance. I know these are kind of churchy words, aren't they? Confession, repentance. Now, re- repentance is a similar word to confession, except that repentance means turning toward God. Okay, Confession is bringing sin to light. Repentance means turning away from uh, the life that you lived once and turning toward God. It means changing the habits of your life. And so don't just try to rid yourself of sin, but instead pursue Jesus. Think about the habits in your life that led you to sin. Remember, sin is not typically something that you just de- decide to do in the moment. It's not, a, it's not typically a sudden act of rebellion. It's usually a habit that you've allowed to grow or a series of small steps Where you weren't intentional about how you lived, and so you need to make an intentional turn to pursue Christ. And finally, you have to trust that you are really forgiven. You know, if we just talk about confession and repentance and doing better, a lot of times that can even feel oppressive to people because they say, you know, I've tried all my life to do better, to do better, to do better. And this is where the power comes in. You have to trust that you are really forgiven because there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you have done that will make God love you less. He loves you, and he loves you even in your sin, but he doesn't want you to continue to live in it, and he doesn't give up on you. Jesus says in John 8:36, when the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. And sometimes believing that God would forgive you after all the times that you've sinned is the biggest hurdle that people have to get over. Because we oftentimes don't feel that we deserve to be forgiven. And you know what? You don't. And neither do I. It's okay. Because that's the amazing thing about Jesus. Is that even though we don't deserve to be forgiven, He does it anyway. And so we have to learn to trust, not in our own goodness, not in our circumstances changing, but to trust in God's forgiveness for us. Believe that when you confess, that when you repent, that you truly are forgiven, that God still loves you and He will continue to walk with you. He will be with you. And through that, you can be free from the power of sin. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you for this season of Advent. And we know that we live in the in-between times right now where um, we are still subject to injustice and oppression. We're still subject to bad circumstances that, that we oftentimes think cause us to sin. But the reality is we know that it's not an excuse for sin to continue the cycle. God, I pray that whatever is happening in our lives right now, the circumstances or the temptations that, that, are, are, that are influencing us to, to turn our backs on you, that are influencing us to give in to sin. God, if you would, I do pray that you would make those circumstances go away. But God, if you choose not to, God, help us to walk in your grace. Help us to know that, that when we confess, that we truly are forgiven. And we don't have to wallow in self-pity and shame because we know that we have a God who will not forsake us, who will not abandon us, but wants us to be free from the oppression of our own sin, to free us to be able to work against injustice for other people, to not continue the, the cycle of sin that is so easy to participate in. And God, I pray that during this Advent season that we would take the time to focus on you. That we would take time to remember where our hope really is. Not in our own righteousness, not in the government, not in our own circumstances, but our hope is in you and you alone. And as we do that, may we walk in freedom and hope of your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.